Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for a great and important reminder of our total dependence upon you. Lord, you are the one who provides us every breath that we breathe and the strength that we have. And for the journey that we embark upon, Lord, we need you to show us the way. We need to be people who recognize that depending on you is our strength. So Father, um, when we are weak, you are demonstrated to be strong in our lives. So I pray that we might rest in that truth and realize, oh God, that you are our joy, you are our strength, you are the one who watches over us and cares for us. Lord, I pray this morning as we spend time in your word that you will powerfully work in the areas of our life perhaps that we haven't surrendered to you, haven't given over, where we are fighting for control and dominance in our own lives. I pray, oh God, that we might recognize that you are looking for those who are full-hearted, depending upon you. May our time in the word of God now be... uh, be rich in our lives as we willingly submit to your voice in our heart, I pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, if you've looked at where we're heading this morning, we have a very long section of scripture to cover. And... What really matters is that we hear the word of God. So I don't want to shortchange us on the scripture at all. In fact, I like a statement that Alistair Begg made. He says, if you want to listen to God, open your Bible. Beware of every other notion about how you're going to hear from God. I think that's pretty good. And the Apostle Paul said that uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by word of Christ. So I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings. We're going to look at 2 Kings 8.16 through 10.36, which I time takes me about 13 plus minutes to read. (coughs) So I I had to divide this whole section into two sermons. It was going to be one, but now we're going to we're going to handle one of the major themes next week. I think it'll be perfect for Thanksgiving Sunday. One of the things that I just wanted to say as we sort of set up our reading, and we read through again an Old Testament section of Scripture that's pretty alarming. Um, lots of violence and... and um, yeah, and hardship and all of that. You know, you might be like an IT worker who takes the GO train into Toronto and says, I don't, I don't know how this deal at all makes its way into my life. So let me give you a, just a, a hint as we're going to be starting to read. With the, in the Old Testament stories, what you need to be looking for, and that's what I do when I'm preparing sermons, is look for the divine commentary that slipped into the narrative facts, the details. You'll see them. You'll see several of them here, and they jump out at you. And 
these same divine commentaries jumped out at the New Testament writers. You'll find that the theology we're going to look at today is handled in the New Testament because the New Testament writers pulled it straight out of these Old Testament narratives. Theological themes like marriage, influence, justice, uncontrolled zeal, revenge, peace, all found in here. We could go off on a whole series of, of lessons just from the theology that will pop out by divine editorial commentaries that you'll see in the text. And I want you to notice those. And, and if that doesn't convince you, perhaps what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians will. When he said in 1 Corinthians 10, 11 to 12, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us for whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. That's what these, that's the powerful impact that these Old Testament narratives are intended to have in our lives. They are old story warnings about common life realities that are intended to make certain that we are not coasting around thinking everything's all good in our lives when it maybe isn't, and that we might be falling prey to some of the things that are happening here. So having said that, if you turn to 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 16, let's start reading, or let's start hearing, whichever you prefer. In the fifth year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, began his reign as king of Judah. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done, for he married a daughter of Ahab. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, for the sake of his servant David, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. He had promised to maintain a lamp for David and his descendants forever. In the time of Jehoram, Edom rebelled against Judah and set up its own king. So Jehoram went to Zer with all his chariots. The Edomites surrounded him and his chariot commanders, but he rose up and broke through by night. His army, however, fled back home. To this day, Edom has been in rebellion against Judah. Libna, which was a Levitical city, even Libna revolted at the same time. As for the other events of Jehoram's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? Jehoram rested with his fathers and was buried with them in the city of David. And Ahaziah, his son, succeeded him as king, which would be king of Judah. In the twelfth year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel... Ahaziah, son of Joram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem one year. His mother's name was Athaliah, a granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. He walked in the ways of the house of Ahab and did evil in the eyes of the Lord as the house of Ahab had done, for he was related by marriage to Ahab's family. Ahaziah went with Joram, son of Ahab, to war against Hazael, king of Aram, at Ramoth-Gilead. The Arameans wounded Joram, so King Joram returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds the Arameans had inflicted on him in Ramoth 
in his battle with Hazael, king of, Joram, uh, king of Aram. Then Ahaziah, son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to Jezreel to see Joram, son of Ahab, because he had been wounded. This next section that we're going to read is in response to God's prophecy to Elijah of the judgment on the house of Ahab. That's what we're going to see in the next two chapters. The prophet Elisha summoned a man from the company of the prophets and said to him, tuck your cloak into your belt, take this flask of oil with you and go to Ramoth Gilead. When you get there, look for Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. Go to him. Get him away from his companions and take him into an inner room. Then take the flask and pour the oil on his head and declare, this is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and run. Don't delay. So the young man, the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. When he arrived, he found the army officers sitting together. I have a message for you, commander, he said. For which of us, asked Jehu. For you, commander, he replied. Jehu got up and went into the house. Then the prophet poured the oil of Jehu's, on Jehu's head and declared, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anoint you king over the Lord's people, Israel. You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master. And I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. The whole house of Ahab will perish. I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, son of Ahijah. As for Jezebel, dogs will devour her on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and no one will bury her. Then he opened the door and ran. When Jehu went out to his fellow officers, one of them asked him, Is everything all right? Why did this madman come to you? You know the man and the sort of things he says, Jehu replied. That's not true, they said. Tell us. Jehu said, here is what he told me. This is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. They hurried and took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. So Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram, Joram and all Israel had been defending Ramoth Gilead against Hazael, king of Aram. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds the Arameans had inflicted on him in the battle with Hazael, king of Aram. Jehu said, If this is the way you feel, don't let anyone slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. Then he got into his chariot and rode to Jezreel because Joram was resting there and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had gone down to see him. When the lookouts standing on the tower in Jezreel saw Jehu's troops approaching, he called out, I see some troops coming. Get a horseman, Joram ordered. Send him to meet them and ask, do you come in peace? The horseman rode off to meet Jehu and said, this is what the king says. Do you come in peace? What do you have to do with peace? Jehu replied, fall in behind me. The lookout reported, the messenger has reached them, but he isn't coming back. So the king sent out a second horseman. When he came to them, he said, this is what the king says. Do you come in peace? Jehu replied, what do you have to do with peace? Fall in behind me. The lookout reported. He has reached them, but he isn't coming back either. The driving is like that of Jehu, son of Nimshi. He drives like a madman. Hitch up my chariot, Joram ordered. And when it was hitched up, Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, rode out, each in his own chariot, to meet Jehu. 
They met him at the plot of ground that had belonged to Naboth, the Jezreelite. When Joram saw Jehu, he asked, have you come in peace, Jehu? How can there be peace, Jehu replied, as long as all the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound? Joram turned about and fled, calling out to Ahaziah, treachery, Ahaziah. Then Jehu drew his bow and shot Joram between the shoulders. The arrow pierced his heart, and he slumped down in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his chariot officer, pick him up and throw him on the field that belonged to Naboth, the Jezreelite. Remember how you and I were riding together in chariots behind Ahab, his father, when the Lord made his prophecy about him? Yesterday I saw the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, and I will surely make you pay for it on this plot of ground, declares the Lord. Now then, pick him up and throw him on that plot in accordance with the word of the Lord. When Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw what had happened, he fled up the road to Beth Hagan. Jehu chased him, shouting, kill him too. They wounded him in his chariot on the way up to Ger near Iblim, but he escaped to Megiddo and died there. His servants took him by chariot to Jerusalem and buried him with his fathers in his tomb in the city of David, the 11th year of Joram, son of Ahab, as Ahaziah had become king of Judah. Then Jehu went to Jezreel. When Jezebel heard about it, she painted her eyes, arranged her hair, and looked out of a window. As Jehu entered the gate, she asked, Have you come in peace, Zimri, you murderer of your master? He looked up at the window and called out, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him. Throw her down, Jehu said. So they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered the wall and the horses as he trampled her underfoot. Jehu went in and ate and drank. Take care of that cursed woman, he said, and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. But when they went out to bury her, they found nothing except her skull, her feet, and her hands. They went back and told Jehu, who said, This is the word of the Lord, that he spoke through his servant Elijah the Tishbite. On the plot of ground of Jezreel, dogs, at Jezreel, dogs will devour Jezebel's flesh. Jezebel's body will, will be like refuse on the ground in the plot of Jezreel, so that no one will be able to say, This is Jezebel. Now there were in Samaria 70 sons of the house of Ahab, let me just pause to say, Jezebel did not give birth to 70 sons. He had, obviously, concubines in a harem. So Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, to the officials of Jezreel, to the elders and to the guardians of Ahab's children. He said, as soon as this letter reaches you, since your master's sons are with you and you have chariots and horses, fortified city and weapons, choose the best and most worthy of your master's sons and set them on his father's throne then fight for your master's house. But they were terrified and said, if two kings could not resist him, how can we? So the palace administrator, the, chief, the, the city governor, the elders and the guardians sent this message to Jehu. We are your servants and we will do anything you say. We will not appoint anyone as king. You do whatever you think best. Then Jehu wrote them a second letter saying, if you are on my side and will obey me, Take the heads of your master's son and come to me in Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Now the royal princes, 70 of them, were with the leading men of the city who were rearing them. When the letter arrived, these men took the princes and slaughtered all 70 of them. And they put their heads in baskets and sent them to Jehu in Jezreel. When the messenger arrived, he told Jehu, they have brought the heads of the princes. Then Jehu ordered, put them in two piles at the entrance of the city gate until morning. 
The next morning, Jehu went out. He stood before all the people and said, you are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him, but who killed all these? Know then that not a word that the Lord has spoken against the house of Ahab will fail. The Lord has done what he has promised through his servant, Elijah. So Jehu killed everyone in Jezreel who remained of the house of Ahab, as well as all his chief men, his close friends, and his priests, leaving him no survivor. Jehu then set out and went towards Samaria at Beth-Eked of the shepherds. He met some relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and asked, Who are you? They said, We are relatives of Ahaziah. We've come down to greet the families of the king and of the queen mother. Take them alive, he ordered. So they took them alive and slaughtered them by the well of Bethacad. Forty-two men. He left no survivor. After he left there, he came upon Jehonadab, son of Rechab, who was on his way to meet him. Jehu greeted him and said, Are you in accord with me as I am with you? I am, Jehonadab answered. If so, said Jehu, give me your hand. So he did. Jehu helped him up into the chariot. Jehu said, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Then he had him ride along in his chariot. When Jehu came to Samaria, he killed all who were left there of Ahab's family. He destroyed them, according to the word of the Lord spoken to Elijah. Then Jehu brought all the people together and said to them, Ahab, serve Baal a little. Jehu will serve him much. Now summon all the prophets of Baal, all his ministers and all his priests. See that no one is missing because I'm going to hold a great sacrifice for Baal. Anyone who fails to come will no longer live. But Jehu was acting deceptively in order to destroy the ministers of Baal. Jehu said, call an assembly in honor of Baal. So they proclaimed it. Then he sent word throughout Israel, and all the ministers of Baal came. Not one stayed away. They crowded out the temple of Baal until it was full from one end to the other. And Jehu said to the keeper of the wardrobe, Bring robes for all the ministers of Baal. So he brought out robes for them. Then Jehu and Jehonadab, son of Rechab, went into the temple of Baal. Jehu said to the ministers of Baal, Look around and see that no servants of the Lord are here with you, only ministers of Baal. So they went in to make sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had posted 80 men outside with this warning. If one of you lets any of the men I am placing in your hands escape, it will be your life for his. As soon as Jehu had finished making the burnt offering, he ordered the guards and officers, go in and kill them. Let no one escape. So they cut them down with a sword. The guards and officers threw the bodies out and then entered the inner shrine of the temple of Baal. They brought the sacred stone out of the temple of Baal and burned it. They demolished the sacred stone of Baal and tore down the temple of Baal. And people have used it for a latrine to this day. So... Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. However, he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit, the worship of the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. The Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in accomplishing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab all I had in mind to do, your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. Yet Jehu was not careful to keep the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart, he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, which he had caused Israel to commit. In those days, the Lord began to reduce the size of Israel. Hazael overpowered the Israelites throughout their territory, east of the Jordan, in all the land of Gilead, the region of Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh, from Orah 
by the Arnon Gorge through Gilead to Bashan. As for the other events of Jehu's reign, all he did and all his achievements, are they not written in the book of Annals of the Kings of Israel? Jehu rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Jehoahaz, his son, succeeded him as king. The time that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. This is the word of God. So, I, I just want to pick out this morning three really powerful lessons from two pathetic kings. And apply these particular lessons to our situation today, our lives today. There's a fourth that I want to handle next week, Lord willing, that really occupies most of chapter nine. So we're mostly looking at chapter eight, the end of chapter eight and chapter 10. A little bit of nine, but mostly that. So having said that, the first lesson really is important that, or that we find is kind of, a, as I said to you, sort of divine commentary that leaps out at you when, you when you read the text is found at the end of chapter eight here. And it has to do with the marriage to the daughter of Ahab. Do you notice that in verse 18? He was 32 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done, for he married a daughter of Ahab. Now let me just pause for a second and just remind us of, of, of God's people's history in this. We have the breakdown of the tribes. We have the northern tribe and the southern tribe. The northern 10 tribes that become quite apostate, were, were serving uh, other gods. And then you have the two southern tribes called Judah. And you have two kings, the king of Israel and the king of Judah. And here's what's happening right now. The king of Judah is marrying into the king of Israel's family. So he marries Ahab's daughter. Athaliah was her name. And this is drawn out for us on several occasions. You look, and so um, it talks about his eight-year reign and the fact that he has all kinds of uh, compromise. He has all kind, says here he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then it talks about all kinds of, of uh, disloyalty that happens. The Edomites rebel against Judah. Um, Libna revolts against Judah, which is a Levitical city, a very key city of, for protection. And, and uh, you see that... that uh, the Jehoram of Judah has nothing but trouble in this marriage. And then the product of his marriage is Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, who's 22 years old when he begins to reign. And his mother is Athaliah, who is the granddaughter of Omri, the Omri dynasty, the daughter of Ahab. And so now you've got the king of Judah, by the marriage of his father, is now connected to the house of Israel, which is an apostate uh, group. And it says in verse 22, he, meaning now, the, uh, Ath- or now uh, Ahaziah, walked in the ways of the house of Ahab and did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So when Joram married the daughter of Ahab, he plunged the house of David into a spiritual intensive care unit. So let me just make a a statement here in, in lesson number one, and that is this. There is grave danger in any generation in relationally assimilating with the sinful. Grave danger. 
throughout the scriptures, beginning in Exodus, all the way through the Bible, there is a warning to God's people that's consistent. Do not uh, associate yourself closely with those who don't love God. There's two, <clears throat> excuse me, and the reason, they will steal your hearts away from God. In fact, turn back quickly to Exodus. I want to show you in the text, Exodus 34, verse 16, and, and this, this teaching, this command of God runs throughout all of the scriptures and is consistently abused by people of God. Exodus 34, verse 16. Um, starting in verse 15, be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, in other words, those who do not serve God. For they, when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. Consistently throughout all of the scriptures, you go to 1 Kings verse 11, or chapter 11 with King Solomon who married many women from many different countries who stole his heart away from God. When you get to Ezra and Nehemiah and the reforms that they're seeking to make, you've got all kinds of the people of God intermarried with people who, who serve uh, pagan deities who are stealing their hearts away from God. And then the Apostle Paul picks it up in the, in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and says this very clearly, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with a non-believer? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate. Throughout all of the scriptures, there is this warning to God's people about the assimilation that will occur if you link your lives with people who don't love God. It's true of marriage, and it's true of any close partnerships. What you have here is a clear statement in the Old Testament from God, a, a divine commentary in the text that the reason that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord was because he married into an evil family. And so I urge you, uh, you know, over, you've heard this before, you've heard it many times, marrying, intermarrying with those who don't love God is going to eventually steal your heart away from the living God. And it will invariably infect your children. Jezebel, it talks about Jezebel, particularly. Jezebel was such a strong personality, had such strong influence as a Sidonian Baal worshiper from Tyre that her children followed her ways, her dominant personality. And so Omri, the house, the apostate house of the north, infected the house of the south, the house of David. And, and that's why the explanation is here that, you know, God... Nevertheless, for the sake of his servant David, was not willing to destroy Judah. And by the way, for the sake of Christ, God is not willing to destroy us. Thankfully, that's what the grace of God means. That's what the covering of God is all about. 
but also in close partnerships. You, you see that Ahaziah, young man of 22 years, 22 years of age, is now linked to the family that is wicked. And as, they go to, as, as Joram goes to Ramoth Gilead to settle a score from his father, it's kind of like Bush 1 and Bush 2, to settle a score from his father in Ramoth Gilead because Ahab was killed in Ramoth Gilead. So this is round two. Joram takes the king of Israel and he takes his nephew now, the son Ahaziah, the son of his sister Athaliah, with him. And there's a, there's a, he gets shot. He gets, the, the king of Israel gets destroyed here. And you're going to find out later by Jehu, but you're going to find out that also Ahaziah is destroyed at the age of 23, he, he serves one year because he hitched his wagon to the wrong man. Close partnerships, marriage, grave danger. Listen, parents, as you're raising your children, raise them with a commitment and a passion to plan their lives in the direction of close relationships and partnerships and marriage with solid followers of Christ alone because your heart is on the line and the hearts of your children are on the line. The second lesson we hear here is justice delayed is not justice overlooked. With God and judgment deferred is not judgment forgotten. A- any of you wonder about the justice of God in your life? Ever, any of you wondering about will God take care of me? Will God settle in unjust or unjust scores that have happened to me? Will will God? Does God has God noticed the abuse that's happened in my life? Does God care about that? And will God take care of that? The answer is yes. That's a point of these stories. They're, they're to teach us the ways of God. But God does not settle all of his scores on Saturday night. This is, there's a long delay in what God had stated about the house of Ahab and when reckoning finally came. There's a long delay. It, it waited for the right time. So justice delayed is not justice overlooked with God ever, and judgment deferred is never judgment forgotten. In 1 Kings 21, verse 21, God had said, I am going to bring disaster on you, Ahab. I will consume your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. And Ahab repented, if you remember. And so God delayed the judgment. And in verse 29, God says, I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Well, right now is the days of his son. God had already stated when that was going to be. The simple truth is, all of this abuse and injustice and mistreatment of people is all because of sin. Sin drives everything that is wrong in this world. And fleeing evil requires first dealing with sin. If we're not sure what sin is, sin is missing the mark. What mark? The righteousness of God. 
We talk about sin, maybe we haven't defined it. God's righteousness. That's why the Bible tells us that we have fallen short of the glory of God. Because we've all missed the mark of God's righteousness, which is why we need Jesus Christ, who's the perfect righteous substitute for us. It's in him that we acquire Jesus' righteousness and his strength not to sin. Because the Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. God has committed himself to judge sin. And the wages of sin not taken care of in this life will be judged by God as eternal death. These stories that we see in the Old Testament playing out is God's warning to us that he means what he says. That he means when he says he's going to judge, he will judge. When God says the wages of sin is death, he means it, beloved. But Jesus rescues us. What is our salvation? Jesus rescues us from the coming wrath. 1 Thessalonians verse, chapter 1, verse 10. What are we saved from? We are saved from the wrath of God against sin. So God intends to settle the scores of abuse and mistreatment and injustice. And it's demonstrated here. But make note of this, that in Jehu's commission to carry forth the judgment of God, that it is God who avenges. He commissions Jehu, who represents now the government of Israel, because Jehu is now the king. We need to know that God, uh, his his present judgment and present justice, not talking about eternity, that is being carried forth, is carried forth through the commissioning of governments. It is through the Old Testament, it is presently. God executes his sovereign reign over the earth from the beginning to the end through governments and pastors. That's how God executes his sovereign reign over this earth. And God will use evil nations and good nations to carry forth his sovereign reign. And that's what we're seeing take place here. Because in Deuteronomy 32, 35, God has made it abundantly clear that revenge or avenging is God's office, not ours. And Paul records that in Romans chapter 12 when he says it's, it's not for us. Take no revenge on anyone. It is not our individual office ever to take revenge. Revenge belongs to the Lord. It says, I, it is mine to avenge, God says, I will repay, repay. And so God is carrying forth what he has promised to, to do, which is the judgment on not just the innocent blood of Naboth, but the mistreatment by the house of Ahab of the servants of the living God. See what it says here? You are destroyed, verse 7, chapter 9, you destroy the house of Ahab, your master, and I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. Jezebel had many of the prophets of God executed. And so God is following through with judgment here. And he is warning us and warning the world he will judge. And judgment always begins on the inside. 
Why is Israel being judged so extremely by God here? Because God always starts with his own people. That's why Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, 18, and so on, if that judgment begins in the house of the Lord, if it begins with us, what will become of those who do not obey the gospel of God? If it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? God will judge. Make no mistake about it. Justice delayed is not justice overlooked, and judgment deferred is not judgment forgotten. But thanks be to God, all of us who have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ are now no longer under condemnation. But know this, that our lives and how we live our lives is not an abuse of that grace. Because Jesus taught us that every careless word that we utter, we will face Jesus Christ in the coming judgment. Will we be judged with eternal damnation? Absolutely not. Because Christ has now become our substitute. The third major lesson is this. Beware when your zeal against wrong things is greater than your passion for what is right. I don't know if you saw this as we were reading through this, but there's something wrong with Jehu. Not just a bad chariot driver. It says he drives like a madman. He's one of those uh, on the 401, you know, who weave in and out of traffic all the time. That's Jehu. Says he drives like a madman, but more than that, he was commissioned by Elisha to take care of the family of Ahab. But did you notice what he did? Read, look at chapter 10, verse 11, for instance. So Jehu killed everyone in Jezreel who remained of the house of Ahab, as well as all his chief men, his close friends, and his priests, leaving him no survivor. God did not commission him to kill everybody around Ahab. And look as you continue on. Jehu then set out, went towards Samaria, met some relatives of Ahaziah, Who are you? Relatives of Ahaziah. He tells, take them alive. So they took them alive and slaughtered them by the well Beth Echad, 42 men. He left no survivors. So Jehu just keeps on going. He's been commissioned to be the king of Israel. He keeps on going now and continues to take out not only the king of Israel, but he takes out the king of, of, of Judah and all of his relatives and chief men, close friends, priests. He just... Slaughter, slaughter, slaughters. There's something serious, seriously necessary for us to ponder in these days as we, we watch Jehu's life, as he represents the army. It's highly possible that the army had become very uh, sick and tired of the Ahab regime, the Omri regime. If you read in 1 Kings 22, 39, it talks there about Constant wars, costly building projects and taxation, lavish lifestyle of the Omri dynasty, years of hardship that had fallen upon them. The, the army was ready for a coup d'etat. There's no question about that. But this is no longer a holy mission the way Jehu is carrying it out. It's now become about frustration, years of pent-up frustration, it would seem, 
and also ambition run wild. This is the actions of a man who wanted to secure his place and destroy everything in sight to ensure that would take place. And then he goes on to destroy the Baal worship in Israel for which he is commended. So why am I drawing the conclusion that Jehu went too far? That he wasn't entirely right in what he did? There's a word in the text that you should always notice, it always jumps out at us, and it's the word however. That's always a major word, however. And you'll find it in verse 28 of chapter 10. So Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. However, he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit, the old tradition of golden calf worship started in Aaron, continued on through Jeroboam, the worship of the golden calves of Bethel and Dan. Jehu, come on. Now look, we see the Lord commend him in verse 30, because you have done well and accomplished what is right in my eyes and have done for the house of Ahab all I am mine to do. Your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. Yet, that's another word, however and yet. And but is always a word too. Yet Jehu was not careful to keep the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam. Reformers, reformers take care of everything. But Jehu clearly stands out as one who hated Baal worship and his circumstances more than he loved God's truth. And was more ambitious for power than he was, and maybe freedom, than he was zealous for righteousness. Now, bring this into your own moment. You know, he gets rid of some idolatry, but not this idolatry, because I think it's safe to say he wanted to be a populist leader. Populist leaders, you see, get rid of all threats, They make obvious reform using scapegoats, but they also don't rock the boat in populist thinking. And the golden calf of Bethel and Dan was long entrenched apostasy in Israel. And what we see is he did not have zeal in his heart for for full reform. And let let me just draw this home and, and then we'll be done There's lots of religious people. They know what's wrong and they oppose it. But they don't love what is right enough to really embrace it. Jehu's a pragmatist. He's ambitious. Religion is a means to an end for him. It's power. He takes the easy way. He knows what's right. But he doesn't actually do it because it hasn't shaped his own heart. It's not whether or not you know how to defend the gospel. It's not whether or not you can win an argument for God as creator. It's not that you know about the gospel of Jesus Christ and you know about all the Christian holidays and what they mean. It's whether or not the gospel really has you. 
It's whether or not Jesus Christ is really living in you. It's whether or not the Holy Spirit has really moved into your life. There's lots of people out there that can win an argument about the gospel. They're raised in Sunday school. They know all the, all the stories. They, they can go toe-to-toe with anybody at their workplace defending God as glorious creator of this world. They know what's right. And they have a measure of some sort of success in living right. But what really matters is whether or not it's seriously embraced in their own lives. And you see what happens here. In those days, verse 32, the Lord began to reduce the size of Israel under the watch of Jehu because he completely devastated all the leaders of the land. There was no one left. That's not what God asked him to do. So let me ask you, are you able to defend all the great theological truths about God? You can go toe-to-toe with anybody about what's right and wrong. You can look at the horizon right now and say that there's some bad things on the horizon. You, you, you know what's right and wrong right now. You're defending with great zeal and passion. This is wrong. This is wrong. But it's never settled itself in your own heart. It's not coming from your heart. It's coming from your zeal for ambition, power, freedom, whatever. But not from the heart of God. Do you have God? And does God have you? Because Satan can explain the gospel. Satan can defend God as creator. Satan knows who God is. But Satan doesn't have God. Doesn't have the good news. Hasn't embraced the truth. Personally. Our Father, I pray this morning as we close this part of this credible section of scripture that we will do some soul searching in our own lives although Jehu was commended for some of his activity some of his obedience some of his right living he was he was not wholehearted he did not follow you with a reformation heart to do all that you had commanded him or challenged him to do. And so Israel was plunged into years of compromise to survive. Oh God, I pray this morning that we will come at the gospel with right motives, at the truth with right motives, righteousness and right and wrong with, from from a deep place in our hearts controlled by the Holy Spirit, I pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. The picture that you are looking at behind me is the oldest known ancient depiction of a biblical character 
yet discovered. It's called the Black Obelisk of Shalmaneser III, Syrian king. What's tragic about that picture is the individual bowing in that picture is Jehu, the most ancient depiction of a biblical character is supposed to be a man of God bowing to a pagan king. What's so tragic about that is that God called Jehu to reform, to clean up Israel. And although he knew what was right to do, it was never embedded in his own heart. And in the first year of his reign, he complies with the government of Assyria and Israel unravels for the next hundred years until it's completely dominated by, the northern tribes are completely dominated by the Assyrians. What's important for us in this is that Jesus is not just the savior. He must be your savior. The gospel is not something we intellectually are able to defend. The gospel must belong to us and shape our lives. Otherwise, the depiction of our lives is compromised with the things of the world. I want this image to be emblazoned on your hearts and your minds as you think about real reformation and real obedience to God and a real passionate zeal for the things of Christ. Because that's what God calls us to. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, if you're watching us online and you don't know the Lord Jesus as your own personal Lord and Savior, you know about him, you know you can defend the truths about the gospel, you know about the Bible, you can defend God as, as the creator, but you have never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this message is for you today. No longer should you be bowing and compromising to the world. You are called to walk with God through Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I implore you to receive him today. He is inviting you to become a child of God today or in this room. In the event that someone's here, you've been coming to church since you were a little kid. You can defend all the Bible stories. Your zeal is for your intelligence about the Bible, but there are cracks in your life that reveal that you don't have Jesus as your own Lord and Savior. Today is the day of salvation. Today is an urgent day of salvation. Call on the Lord today and you will be saved. Father, I thank you so much for your truth to us. I pray, oh God, that you would um, bring to yourself those who've uh, perhaps been zealous religiously but have never embraced the truth of Jesus Christ as their own Savior. I pray, O oh God, for salvation to happen today. And I pray for each of us to be careful how we live, lest we too fall. These stories are warnings to us that we might remain faithful to you in every area of our life. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.